Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. This episode is sponsored by Glimpse. Look, as you know, I am a proud Duke Blue Devil, through and through. And yeah, sadly, I'm no longer in a dorm room there, so I do need to change the name soon. Dorm room history doesn't really work, I know. But while I make history podcasts, another fellow Duke Blue Devil went out and started a fantastic company called Glimpse. Glimpse is a virtual event platform that uses match optimization technology for timed conversations that actually engage participants. So what does that mean? Well, we have all been thrust into a virtual communication and video meeting frenzy over the last two years. And even as things become more normal, it is clear some of the pandemic work-life facets are here to stay. And Glimpse offers a better way to engage in virtual meetings. It's like Zoom, but better. Don't believe me? Well, companies like Spotify, Amazon, and SpaceX use it for company icebreakers. Those are real companies. And colleges like Duke and Alabama use it for recruitment events. No, I'm not going to make that joke. But some people even use it for speed dating. Though, another life update here, I won't be needing the speed dating function. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Glimpse is absolutely incredible, and I cannot recommend it enough. So, because you guys are listening to the history of China, you guys can sign up for Glimpse at go.joinglimpse.com/china. That is go g o dot join j o i n glimpse g l i m p s e dot com slash china. You can write that down right now, or go to my website, and you can see the link there. Upgrade your video calling today with Glimpse. Though last time we rounded out the reign of Emperor Xuan, and remember this: at his death, the Western Han reached its zenith, size-wise. Spoiler: like finishing season one of True Detective, it's only going to be downhill from here. As always, though, remember to rate and share the show and give a follow. And yes, get Glimpse. Trust me. You won't regret it. So, without further ado, the history of China, episode forty-one: infighting and shrinkage. Emperor Xuan is gone. The Han Dynasty is the largest it will ever be. So, what exactly happens? One thing I can say is that it is not an immediate collapse. And honestly, without hindsight, you really wouldn't see a decline for quite some time. But that brings us to a classic question of viewing ancient history, and more specifically, that ancient history regarding empires and dynasties. With the little information we have, it is hard to judge the society's greater ebbs and flows. You have biased history written by emperors that can gloss over actual problems, or conversely, you can have history written by emperors that exaggerate the issues of their predecessors. Yeah, we can see tax logs at times or see other archaeological findings, but that is if we can even get them. So, 
One constant way you can try and roughly gauge an ancient civilization's ups and downs is, well, its total size. Growing? Things are getting good, better, best. Staying the same? It's stagnation. And if it's shrinking, things are only getting worse. This is, of course, though, extremely rudimentary. This is like guessing who won a game of American football without knowing the final score, but only knowing how many turnovers each team had. Yes, statistically, it does lean towards being a small indicator of who would end up winning, but it's hardly rock solid. It is not a surefire thing by any means. So when territory starts to be chipped away, don't press the panic button Yet. Because, yeah, the good times are going to start fading, but it's going to be slow. Emperor Xuan came out the gates, and things were pretty good. The Xiongnu were now slowly becoming vassals, the borders were quelled, and he simply continued the policy of lessening the burden on the people. Which translates to, he cut spending. Even 2,000 years ago, Policy is policy, much like today. Though, obviously, today's policy is without the castration, the frequent executions, the dynastic systems. But hey, I gotta make myself feel special for being a public policy major. Let me have this victory. Now, one thing Emperor Yuan did immediately that was different from his father was his extreme reliance on Confucian scholars. But this isn't a secret. Last episode, we touched on this because, well, his father was extremely concerned with his crown prince's over-reliance on officials. His father, Emperor Xuan, was no one-man show. We went over this. He himself even honored his best officials and advisors. He really cared for what they had to say. But that's really all they were, advisors. They could advise and he would seek their opinions, but at the end of the day, Emperor Xuan was the one that made the decisions. He was the one that made the calls, and he would disagree with them at times. Emperor Yuan, however, was not like that. He did not have that kind of relationship with his advisors. Because he appears to have relied on them to make most of the decisions. This wasn't because he was some commodus who had better things to do than attend to the state, but he still became so reliant on his advisors that it was really honestly to a potentially concerning degree. Though in some weird twist of fate, I guess that does in some parts make him his own man. Because Emperor Xuan, when he was emperor, didn't promote Confucian scholars like his son, the current emperor, Emperor Yuan, did. Emperor Yuan, for his part, was a massive Confucian. And though honestly, more unlike his father, he happened to quickly find an empress and found a crown prince who popped out soon after. Though hey, that wasn't his father's fault, really. Huo Guang's wife saw his crown prince and his wife, that whole situation, stifled. But this is where I'm left, and I am actually really proud of my analogies. Quick side note, to those of you who know me personally, I am the king, the emperor, 
of extreme, odd, weird, and quick off the draw, to my credit, analogies. I usually miss the mark, but last week, calling Emperor Xuan the Chinese Trajan, or Trajan was the Roman Emperor version of Emperor Xuan, look, that was a fantastic analogy. Because Trajan was the man who marked the territorial height of the Roman Empire. Just as Emperor Xuan was the man who marked the territorial height of the Han Dynasty. But this is where the analogy gets good. Because after Trajan came the more level-headed penny-pincher Hadrian, someone who looked at the expansive borders of the Roman Empire and said, all right, that was cool, Trajan, but all of this is too expensive and too costly to maintain because look, some of these far out regions offer no value to us besides just making the map bigger. So he gave up a lot of regions. He retreated until the Romans could effectively govern and defend the borders. And Emperor Yuan perfectly fit in line with my analogy because he takes the spot of Hadrian. Why? Because in 46 BC, Emperor Yuan looks at Hainan and says, all right, suppressing rebels and occupying this place is expensive in money and men, so let's abandon that. And not a one-off either, because six years later in 40 BC, he would reduce the number of temples to save more money. Now, Hadrian didn't necessarily do that, but opulence and size were being whittled away for practicality's sake. Look, I know, still a stretch of an analogy, but let's give me one good one here. Come on. Though for Emperor Yuan, shrinking and being pragmatic wasn't actually an issue. These were just pragmatic policy choices. He didn't need to have useless territory that took up men and money that offered no actual tangible benefit. That's fine. The issues, however, really came from, you guessed it, is over-reliance on officials. When you take opinions, but still make decisions, everything flows up. It's a hierarchy. But when officials realize they are the actual ones making the decisions, the officials start to, well, beef with each other for influence and control. And that's exactly what happens to Emperor Yuan. And this hurt because one, the best policy was now not being carried out, and two, because more time was now being devoted to quarreling within the government with each other than making clear and coherent policy for the betterment of the Han Dynasty. Not too dissimilar to today, two rival factions that hated each other emerged in the Han government. Yes, I am making a bad analogy now to the two-party system in the United States. Look, see? Bad analogies. Confucianism is a big part of Chinese history. Look, we know that. And more specifically, ancient Chinese policy. But it's an older thought process than anything new or contemporary in the Han Dynasty. If you like how the Han Dynasty has been operating and the way they think and the way they go about things then you would have sided with the quote-unquote court faction. This faction comprised of mainly non-Confucian people, non-Confucian scholars by and large, who were simply Han court officials, 
hence their name. Their power laid in the fact that they were close to the emperor, literally. Some of them were actual relatives, and if they weren't or if they were, it didn't matter. A lot of them were post holders that were extremely instrumental in processing any dynastic decree. However, if you don't necessarily love how the Han Dynasty has been operating, and instead want to see a return to Confucian ideals and policy that's akin to that in the Zhou Dynasty, then you would have sided with the other faction, the aptly named, quote-unquote, Confucian faction, comprised of, well, yeah, Confucian scholars. Where did their power come from? Yeah, it came from the fact that Emperor Yuan trusted their word and their advice due to their worldviews that derived from their Confucian beliefs. Oh, and what great infighting are you guys in for? Because early on, the court faction was the one that had the upper hand. They would constantly use legal and political traps to get people on the other faction, the Confucian faction, in trouble or demoted. And that is sort of par for the course. These are people accustomed to the court. These are people that understand how the government works inside and out. They're not just there because they're scholars of an old philosophy. And they use these legal and political traps to get two prominent Confucian faction members to be demoted to commoners. The court faction then forced a third Confucian faction member to retire, but didn't stop there because they essentially blackmailed that third Confucian faction member to kill himself. How did they manage that? Well, the court officials got the emperor to investigate that third Confucian faction member for making, allegedly, his son make a petition in his name. Something that is obviously cowardly and shameful if it's true. Was this investigation into the Confucian faction member's son and him colluding on a petition based in any fact? No. None at all. It was made up. But it worked. The third Confucian official of those three killed himself with the other two being demoted to commoners. This is early on in the fight, and the Confucian faction was not out of it yet, though. Soon after being demoted to a commoner, one of those two Confucian faction members was actually brought back into the government along with his student. So two got demoted, one gets brought back, and he's able to bring a second with him. The two Confucians that are brought back didn't hold super high office. But still, it was not their position that mattered. It wasn't their title that made them influential. It was their word and their worldview that mattered. So while they weren't brought up to necessarily the highest of positions, they still had the emperor's ear. And two years later, Emperor Yuan was convinced to promote the Confucian scholar Gong Yu to vice prime minister. And it was Gong Yu, this Confucian official, that was the ace in the hole for the Confucian faction. Maybe that's a little strong. Because he wouldn't actually engage in the infighting. And while that means he wasn't effective against the court officials, it also meant that he wouldn't take any bait. And instead earned more trust by cutting spending and studying Confucianism than trying to undercut and low blow his court official rivals. Funny, 
doing your job actually gets good results. Who would have thought? So yeah, confusing, I know, but essentially, all you need to know is this. Factional infighting between the Confucian and court factions with constant low blows and nipping. That's what's happening, and the court officials are getting kind of the upper hand, but it's still pretty even. Leaning court official, but still not a blowout. But this, now this is where things are going to get weird. While policy then had many of the same shadows of modern policy, it was still the ancient world. In 43 BC, there began to be a myriad of strange and odd astronomical signs. And that can only mean one thing. Heavenly disapproval. There's no arguing with that. That is what it meant to the people at the time. The court faction, believe it or not, were the ones to seize the initiative on this and exclaim that this was proof that the heavens were upset at the Confucian policies of the once demoted Confucian faction member and his student. Promptly upon hearing this, Emperor Yuan had them demoted. Again. Yeah, Emperor Yuan is a, um, let's just call him a very impressionable person. Though, somehow, and again, he loves Confucianism, and by 42 BC, the next year, Emperor Yuan seemed to be interested in promoting another Confucian official. You can almost see what he wants deep down, but he gets his mind warped by other people. It's very strange, but he did. He promoted another Confucian official, a new one named Kuang Hung. But this Confucian official, who, yes, is named Kuang Hung, looked around at what had been happening to the, all the other Confucian officials and realized that, okay, what's happening? Confucian officials would get promoted. They would then be sniped by savvy political maneuvers. So Kuang Hung did the smart thing. He actually allied himself to the court faction. Yeah. I mean, this is great. This is almost like House of Cards stuff, but it's House of the Han Dynasty stuff. But this, for Kuang Hung, was a safe and smart play. But in 40 BC, the Confucians had their own realistic chance to take back all the initiative. Why? Well, because in 40 BC, the unusual activities of the heavens were still happening. Heaven was still unhappy. The court officials and the court faction had blown their shot on this. And when they were asked by Emperor Yuan, hey, this is still happening. Why? You said it was because of the Confucian policies. Yeah, well, they had no answer to that. So the demoted Confucians were brought back again. It could all change right here. Everything hung in the balance. Look, there's only two sides. Clearly, heaven is still disapproved, and you punished one of the sides, and they still disapprove. So you can see where this is going. But the senior of the two Confucian scholars died of a stroke upon being brought back as an official. And the younger student, who was also promoted again, well, he got sniped by a ludicrous accusation and fell for the bait and was done in. Yeah. The Confucians would take a few more chances to retake some political initiative, but generally they would fail every time. The court faction would always maintain the most initiative. Though again, Gong Yu, 
the Confucian who doesn't engage in the infighting, will continue to be a mainstay. So the court faction never has full control, but in terms of the infighting, they always won. Though, of course, the infighting is not all that happened. Emperor Yuan, for his own part, may have had a tendency to be a pacifist, but a military confrontation did happen underneath his reign, and it happened with, guess who? Yes, of course, the Xiongnu. <laughs> we knew this, because we knew from last time that the Xiongnu had split into two competing factions themselves, though their conflict was a little more in the open. Now, one of the Chanyus, which as you remember from a long time ago is the leader of a Xiongnu faction, or the entire Xiongnu, was in the east, and the eastern one had submitted to the Han dynasty. And as we know, the Han-backed Xiongnu became stronger, held their own against the, against the encroaching, more aggressive Xiongnu faction, and they were able to hold their own territory and take some for themselves. But in 44 BC, a man named Chan Yu Zhir Zhir, the Chan Yu of that Xiongnu branch that lost to the Han-backed one, sent an ambassador to offer tributes to the Han dynasty. Interesting, he saw the fruits of being associated with the Han, so he sent an ambassador, but at the same time demanded that the Han deliver his son back to him. Yeah, interesting. This aggressive and power-hungry Xiongnu leader that denied Han vassalship before now wants it after he's been beat and also wants his son back. It was rightfully stipulated by the Han officials that this was nonsense. The now weakened and farther away Xiongnu branch would never submit. Why would they? There was no logical reason. They're just playing a political card to get their, well, their prince back. So the Han said, look, fine, we'll drop your son off at the Han border. That's all you're getting. And the play was smart. They didn't want to keep the kid, and it was clearly useless to have him. The Chan Yu of the aggressive Xiongnu branch that lost is still going to do what he's going to do. But they said, look, if we drop him off at the border, we can maybe try and get the Chan Yu of this aggressive faction to come and talk terms. And maybe, look, if he does mean it, if he does really mean to become a vassal, he'll talk terms. Surprise, surprise, he, he did not. No, he didn't. And the weaker Xiongnu branch would continue to be a small thorn in the side of the Han dynasty and would often raid the northwestern Wusan kingdoms a bit, as they always do. But in 36 BC, two Han commanders had enough. And they were going to take their own initiative and destroy Chan Yu Zhir the leader of this more aggressive and smaller Xiongnu faction, and yeah, to get rid of him. And the two commanders were Gan Yan Shou and his lieutenant Chen Tang. Now, Chen Tang, the lieutenant, felt that the Chan Yu would eventually become a major threat and devised a plan to destroy him. He realized that this is only going to get worse, and the longer we let this guy kick around in the frontier lands, he's just going to get stronger. And he stipulated that, look, Chan Yu Zhir Zhir was powerful. Yeah, sure. But he lacked the affection of any kingdoms that were subject to him. And also, his new capital lacked any defenses. So his plan was to utilize the colonial forces that the Han had used in the Shiyu kingdom, as well as local Wusun forces themselves, 
to capture the capital and kill Chan Yu Jur Jur. So they set a trap for him. What did they do? Well, the Han pretended that they were running low on supplies. And this was smart because they didn't want Chan Yu Jur Jur to flee his capital. They want him to stay. They know the capital has bad defenses, but it can still act as a trap. If he's trapped within his own walls and they surround it, they'll besiege and kill him. But if he sees the Han coming in numbers, he's going to do what the Xiongnu always do. Pick up and leave. And disappear into the vastness of the steppe. But again, the Han dynasty began to pretend they were low on supplies. Began to look disorganized intentionally. Began to look like the supply wagons were running thin. And Chan Yu Jirjir said, hey... I can stay in my capital. The Han are weak. I can kill them right here. But of course, the Han dynasty was strong. It was a trap. And they soon besieged the capital and killed Chan Yu Jirjir in the fighting. Soon later in 33 BC, Chan Yu Hu Hanye, the Chan Yu, by the way, who had made himself a vassal way a long time ago, made an official visit to the Han capital. And formally, after seeing all this happen, asked to become a, quote, son-in-law of Han. And yes, Emperor Yuan said yes to that. And this was great in two different ways. Yes, he was a vassal, but now he was really a vassal. And the two, Emperor Yuan and this Chan Yu Hu Han Ye, became buddies, not friends, but very good political partners because the Chan Yu of this Xiongnu faction that had previously made itself a vassal offered themselves as defense forces for the Han Dynasty's northern frontier. Yes, Emperor Yen rejected that in the end because, you know, they're still the Xiongnu. You can't have them defend your borders, but it went to show the goodwill they began to have. And the Han and Xiongnu relationship would only grow stronger. But that, I think, is enough for one episode. I know, confusing. There was infighting. Then the Xiongnu... And this is it. The Xiongnu are made vassals of the Han in a way that sees them become a son-in-law of the Han. So, remember, to download Glimpse at go.joinglimpse.com slash China. Be sure to rate and subscribe to the show. Five stars if you really love it. And, I mean, if you don't like it, I'd prefer a nasty email over one star. All jokes aside, though, I will keep getting new episodes out. I know, don't worry. Life is just busy. So, thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next time on the History of China. <laughs>